Hello, and welcome to The Faculty Chronicles, TFC, a podcast sponsored by the Turo Center on Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Office of the Provost. Your TFC podcast hosts are me, Professor Gina Bardwell, and Dr. Elizabeth Uni. Across academic disciplines, Turo faculty are producing great work, and the Faculty Chronicles wants you to hear all about it. TFC podcasts will highlight faculty chatting about their favorite project in research, teaching, learning, science, medicine, technology, and so much more. So let's get busy building community, connection, and continuous conversation Turo-wide. Our next Faculty Chronicle guest is on deck waiting to chat. Welcome to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC. I'm your host, Gina Bardwell. Today's TFC guest is Dr. Susan Corey of Turo's Graduate School of Education. I am thrilled you could join us today, and I want to fill our listening audience in on your background. Dr. Susan Corey is currently the department chair of Early Childhood general and special education at Turo Graduate School of Education in New York City. Prior to joining Turo Graduate School of Education in May 2016, Dr. Curry was an associate professor of special education and the mild moderate program coordinator in the Department of Special Education at San Francisco State University. Recently awarded Professor Emeritus at San Francisco State University, Dr. Corey continues work with colleagues and doctoral students on research projects in the area of mathematics and learning challenges, mathematics and music, teacher preparation, and universal design for learning. My goodness, Susan, when do you have time (laughs) to do all the fabulous things that you are doing? You know, Gina, I really enjoy what I do. And you know what they say, if you like what you're doing, it's not really work. And so that is true. And, and I think my downtime is probably when I work out and run. That's when I get to do my thinking. Because I have to say, especially with the pandemic, we're in so many meetings and it's hard to get to the time to do the thinking that you should be doing before you go to a meeting, right? Oh, that's absolutely true. And we're going to get into your running. I want to ask you a little bit for, so San Francisco is a stunningly beautiful um, city. Do you, what do you, what do you miss? Do you miss about, what do you miss about living there or teaching? You will think this is crazy. I miss the weather because you could do outdoor activities all through the year because really it doesn't change very much. I do miss Almost every day I ran through Golden Gate Park. And on the weekends, we ran across often the Golden Gate Bridge. And these are the little things that I miss. But you know, New York has a lot to offer. So I don't pine away. I'm still getting to learn about New York. Good, so you've you've come all the way across the country and you've adopted the city, that's great. Uh, I wanna ask you, because we talked about this a while ago and you just mentioned, you are an avid runner. Now, what what originally drew you to the sport? I think in the very beginning, it was was a way to lose baby weight. (laughs) And then, and then I, I ran a race 
my first like 5k and they give prizes to the first three people in an age category and i placed fourth i missed the prize and after that i, I went for the prizes the stupid ribbons and trophies just love a good piece of junk trophy <laughs> <laughs> oh that's that's really that's really funny uh, but true i know it's a motivator it, it, mm -hmm. it obviously so you also told me that you like this real challenge of grant writing. And so now there's running, which Sue, I'm sorry, it's a challenge to run. I just want to let you know. So I, but I want to know, how does the running inform you on being a, a grant developer? Okay. You know, I, I've thought about this and, and you brought me back to the beginning when I first started running, right? Right. And so you, you go, you do a 5K, then you push it to a 10K, and you push it to a 10-miler, then a half marathon, then a marathon. You want to keep, that. that's, I think, the nature of, that's my nature. I want to keep pushing. Um, and, I, and it's like that with a grant. You know, you become a faculty member, and you have to perform, you know, to get retention, tenure, and promotion. So you have to write. And it's hard. We had, we had a heavy teaching load in San Francisco. It was a 4-4 teaching load. So getting publications meant you worked with people all the time to, to write because you don't, with that teaching load, it was hard to be a sole author. And through that collaboration, I met people in all different areas of special ed and computer science. And so everybody had sort of common objectives. So grant writing became a group activity. And, and so like running, it is solitary in a way, but you can also be part of a team. Right. And so, you know, and there's prizes. And in a grant, <laughs> I love that. I love you get that. the grant. And, and I do like a good challenge. I do like writing. And um, I love that you, you have to do the research, the background, to have you know your lit review, and then you get to be very creative, and that's what landed us where we are with this grant that we have now, because we had no idea. And this is what's so cool about a grant and writing: you picture what you think you can create, and then you work with this team, and the team creates something bigger and better than what you thought you could do. And, and relate it back to running, you, most people who, who think about their first marathon don't really believe that they're going to be able to do it. But you put one foot in front of the other and, and you really do it. it and it really is an amazing achievement mentally and physically to push yourself like that. And I, mean, I find that really challenging. You're right. And then you put one, you put one foot in front of the other you know, one edit in front of another edit, and then you finish the grant. Right. And, you know, you, you also get rejections. And yeah. just like, you know, you do have issues with, with running and physical fitness. It's, it's not all forward progress. And, and I think that's a good lesson. And I remember, as I worked on my PhD, my, um, my uh, advisor said, you will get far more rejections than you will get publications and and just use the feedback that you get to be you know to be better at what you do 
that's really a, that's really a motivator. And it, it, it is interesting that you kept that bee in the back of your bonnet and that mm -hmm. kind of drives you even today. So mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you, and we're going to get into the grant, but I want to ask you personally, were you ever, were you a, a good in math or good in music starting out? Did you gravitate to that growing up? That's so funny. Um, you know, when I originally talked to my advisor about getting a PhD, I, I was teaching kids in Tennessee in state's custody. And the thing with, with that is they, I was a high school English teacher and they, they couldn't read. So I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll get into the area of reading and I'll be able to teach them to read. So, but when I talked to my advisor, she said, you know, getting a PhD is getting the tools to be a researcher. We have a lot of people doing research and reading. We really need people to do research in math. And that's kind of what landed me in the area of math. Wow. They were just, a, they said, um, math is what we need. Is that what you can do? That's where we want to put you. And you said, okay. Yeah. That's, <laughs> honestly, that's pretty much. No. What, and and it, we worked in the area of third grade and problem solving quite a bit in that area. And then I ended up teaching third grade um, while I finished writing my dissertation. That's where I met the music teacher who came into my third grade classroom to get his, to get a music student. And I was teaching fractions. And after school, he said, you know, my, my music students, they, um, they know fractions. And I, I said, no, they don't. That started the conversation that led to exactly what I did today. And that was probably 20 years ago. Oh my goodness. That's something. I mean, happenstance yes and and, and really though sometimes those serendipitous moments are the best so all right so you're you're in san francisco and you're working mm -hmm. with with children and i, I want to know what were some of your first observations about that connection between uh, music and mathematics well he what we talked about was with rhythm you know in when you have a piece of music in four four time the the quarter note gets one beat the whole note gets four beats and so you see where i'm going with this yes so it's sort of that proportional reasoning it's fractions and so um that's where we came together and now he's a music teacher and i'm focused on mathematics but we were such that sort of um was good good attention between us because he insisted that it be genuine music instruction but i also wanted to be sure I was true to fraction instruction. Wow. And this took a while. I, by this time I was at San Francisco State University and they have a small grant for, there you go, another grant, a <laughs> small grant. Another get, prize. <laughs> right, exactly. To get new researchers, you know, up and running. And so we wrote a grant to try and, and implement, write and implement a curriculum where we used rhythm to teach fractions in third grade. And, so, and we ended up implementing that and we ended up publishing the paper. And, and once I got here, that was a long time ago, once I got to New York and so much has, there's so much interest in starting the STEM field early on because if a student isn't exposed to the STEM areas, science, technology, uh, engineering, mathematics, 
by the time they're in third grade, they probably will never go into one of those fields. And those fields are really lucrative. And, and we need kids to go into those fields. So we thought, well, let's take the basis of what we did to teach fractions and let's take it down to kindergarten and start with the early numeracy skills. So uh, full disclosure, I watched some of the video that you sent me of the, of the actual classes. I signed up as a teacher and I went through and I was doing the beats and doing the tapping. And I thought, boy, this is, this is exciting and fun and creative. And it made me want to be in elementary school again. You know, it made me want to say, why not as an adult, can we not do this kind of stuff? But I, I, let me ask you this question. So the music comes before the math or the math before the music in sequence. I would say to, to if, if I were to say to most students, we're okay, we're gonna do math. There's, there's often anxiety. Teachers have anxiety with teaching math, but we're going to clap our hands and we're going to meet some music note characters and we're going to learn about rhythm. So it's clapping and the notes have identities and, and there's music and they're moving. And so yes, the music, genuine rhythm instruction, because by the end of the program, you can see by watching a little bit that, that they can read the notes. And so there's, there's very, very little anxiety but they don't even realize they're counting the entire time. And then because you can only have four beats in a measure, they have to add and subtract to make sure that there's not more than four beats in a measure. And so you see where I'm going with that. We sneak in. And for the more advanced kids, we can sneak in multiplication as well. It's, it's like, putting vegetables and grinding them down really fine and putting them in food for your, for your kids. And they don't know they're eating vegetables because they always say, I don't like vegetables, but that they're, but they're eating vegetables. Right. Right. It's like, if you could put broccoli in a yummy ice cream cone. Yes. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Right. I mean, you wouldn't exactly. want to taste broccoli. <laughs> but if it's ground down enough and if it's, you know, finite and they don't really know they're eating it. Absolutely. I agree. So, what what do you think? Who are the who are the groups of of kids of students who um, who really benefit from this methodology? Well, we have found in in the couple pilots that we have done, we've worked with kids with um, mild disabilities, moderate disabilities, and we have found everyone enjoys music, wow. and we have not had a student not learn what we are teaching them. Now, what, it's so interesting because I can remember one, one child whose communication skills wasn't, they were not good enough to be pre-tested when we started. Part of it was there was one language spoken at home and, and another language in school. And, but he also was on the spectrum, so, you know, communication was difficult. He was learning. And um, he, he picked up the music. He did all the activities in class. But one time, I don't, two years ago, there was a big snowstorm. And, and 
he was one of the only children who showed up for a lesson. And so we put several, several measures of music and he clapped every single measure very accurately. He was loving it, but his parents sat there. They were taking pictures. They brought the grandmother the next week. And I think part of it is that if he was only tested in standard measures at school, the way that we, you know, math worksheets and things, he would, you know, you couldn't gauge his achievement by those means. But his parents could see he can count. He not only can count, he understands the magnitude of numbers. He, he's, he can, you look at a note, it has a particular number. So there's a lot that goes on um, with reading music and he was demonstrating that he could do it. Wow. See, that's when you know that, that that's when you feel rewarded mm -hmm. uh, as being a teacher, being an instructor. So now you and your team were uh, applied and, and you guys were awarded this Educational Innovation and Research Program grant from the U.S. Department of Education. Yes. And that was for uh, GSE, Graduate School of Education. So now, yes. and, and, and you've been studying this relationship with math and music for, for a long time now. But with this program that you're working on specifically, the Turo God, what, what, what goes on in a typical classroom? Can you describe that a little bit with some of well, the Well, okay, now, what's typical right now, right? The right, pandemic. exactly, I know. When but you go I'm, in, yeah, or on Initially, we, we, the idea is that we would teach teachers how to implement this curriculum. So we start with introducing the music notes, and we clap out, we, we make sure it's fun, and there's musical activities. And, you know, they learn the value of the notes, they understand that notes come together to make music. We make music. We do the adding and subtracting. You know, there's all different activities. We, and we, we are building on the principles of universal design for learning. So there's all different ways visually to see the music and the movement and the sounds. So, so there's a lot going on. And like you said, you, you participated in the lesson. And what has happened now that we are virtual, we have been working with the Herbie Hancock Foundation. We have songwriters, um, Herbie Hancock, they are doing animation for us. Um, our teachers have created these amazing virtual classrooms. Um, the talent that has come together in, in this, the pandemic has been an inspiration. I know it's, it's horrible. <laughs> oh, that's a it, good point. It's unbelievable how we were able to push the envelope and, and now we are creating a product that we had not even thought about initially. And so it, it just keeps getting more and more exciting to be honest with you. So Susan, what, what questions do you still think need answering in this process? I think there's more, we can, we, how far can we push the relationship between mathematics and music? There's so much we could do. There's um, something else we're looking into. It is a new application that would enable us to take a piece of music and take it apart. 
so to speak. And that could demonstrate that sort of computational thinking. You know, so you know how we get kids counting and adding and subtracting without them knowing it? By playing with this app, we are instilling the very basic um, fundamentals of, of computer coding. And so I think that's something, you know, it's always in the back of my mind. And, you know, first we have to get the basics, but that's a big question I have, and that's what I hope to look into. Well, that, that's fascinating. I, th I think what you said about how going virtual even pushed the creative envelope more. Mm -hmm. it, it kind of forces you to, do, to, to think in different ways because we have to, right? Yes. All yes. Right. Yes. Exactly. So for this program, what do you think is one of the most um, uh, important outcomes that you would like to see, you know, implemented right away? You just spoke about uh, one about computation and coding. Is there anything else? Well, you know what, this, after the pandemic, okay, mm -hmm. And, and I do think it will end, you know, with um, the vaccine and all, but, but young children, especially having been out of school, their basic skills will really need to be addressed and, and they need to read, right? And they need to learn math. And so my fear is that they won't have music instruction. That always falls by the wayside, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to with this program. And I'm excited. And one of our research questions was, can teachers implement this program with fidelity? And we believe that with our professional development that goes along with the curriculum, any teacher, despite not having a music background, not having a, a strong math background, will be able to use this program with ease and they'll have fun doing it. Oh, kind of like, so in other words, you're saying maybe, you would create a kind of study guide for this? Yes, or? we are. That's actually a part of the grant. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And I say that because we know that teachers can, if, if they don't have, even the ones we specifically, the teachers we're working with now, we specifically hired teachers that did not have a music or math background. And, and they were anxious. And just yesterday, I talked to one and she said, I, I, I hope I'm really getting this. I'm really getting this. And, um, and she is. And so it's fun because the activities we have for professional development, they're fun for the teachers, but they're also learning the music that they'll be able to teach. You know, I think when you said that, that whole uh, thing about, that whole piece about Herbie Hancock and some of these uh, musicians that have a platform, because there still seems to be so little appetite for music in the schools do is there a way are, are you seeing more of a push toward getting it back in elementary yeah. schools oh without a doubt in fact mm -hmm. the um herbie hancock institute of jazz if you go on their website herbie is really supportive of um education and and he is always pushing for more music in schools and um i i do think it's important i think we often lose sight of, of how important music is sometimes. Things get so dark, especially now during the pandemic, but there's not a culture in the world that doesn't have music. Isn't that funny? But music, you're absolutely right, really pulls us all together. That's our one common thread. Mm -hmm. 
so so Sue, wh how do you how do you measure sometimes um, the success that you know students are are learning this well? What are some of the what are some of the ways you you measure the success of this program? Well, we originally anticipated using a standardized math test and do a before and after, but it was a one-on-one -on -one and in-person, so we, we couldn't do that. We're looking at other math measures, but we also have the work that they do. For the music, it's observation. Um, we can see, are they clapping appropriately? Do they understand steady beat? Can they read the measures of music? So that's observational. Um, and then as far as the mathematics, they're adding and subtracting music measures. Um, they, they are able to count. We also do a lot of counting. We, we are addressing the kindergarten standards in mathematics. Um, they understand, you know, that, that the whole note, four beats, is greater in magnitude than the quarter note, for example. So that's observational. But, and then some of the, the things that they'll do with the notes in the music measured by adding and subtracting. So that's, that's one of the ways. And then as we get further into the program, it's, it's fascinating to watch them with say four measures of music and clap it out appropriately so that they're actually reading the music and then to have them relate that to an actual piece of music, Mary Had a Little Lamb, something like that. Like you could see the light go off that, oh yeah, oh, these notes come together and they make a song that I know. That's a, and, that's a, and that's a huge accomplishment. And particularly families probably feel really uh, good about that if their child has a, a kind of challenge, mm -hmm. a, a disability of some kind, and they see them go through those, uh, all of those notes and see what they've learned, see where they started and where they've ended. I think mm -hmm. that's great. We're kind of coming to the end of this interview. This has been fascinating. Actually, I feel like it's more of a conversation. You have, you're doing such great work and I'm just really glad we're able to share it with the audience. But I want to ask you this. If you could partner with anyone, now this is anyone, anyone in the world doing this kind of study and then go for a long run with that person, who are you going to select for this project? You know, um, in the midst of all this research, I met Stanley Jordan, who's a really, really interesting, fascinating. I first went, before I knew a lot about his background, I went to see him on stage. He's an amazing performer. Um, but then he has also come to our grant meetings and showed us some of the work that he does in the area of science, physics, and space. So I would love to run and pick his brain and have him come on board with our project. Because remember I said the computational thinking piece? Yes. I think he would be an interesting person to help us weave that together. Wow, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Susan Corey, everybody. And thank you for being our guest on the fact. Thank you for having me and letting me talk about myself. And this solid work you're doing with math and music is just it, it's really it's interesting it's relevant and it's necessary and we're, and we're just happy that you're at Turo doing it because now you are part of this collaborative Turo community and we want you to know that we appreciate your contribution so much and Gina thank you and I you I can't tell you how well I have been supported and and my colleagues are amazing and um 
I couldn't be happier. Yeah, you, they're, they're, the, the Graduate School of Education is a great team, a great mm -hmm. team. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for tuning in to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, Turo's podcast featuring the projects and work of faculty throughout the Turo College and University system. TFC is sponsored by the Office of the Provost and Kettle, the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. We hope you like what you heard and will keep listening. So join us next time on the Faculty Chronicles as we highlight and share faculty achievements that build community, connection, and continuous conversation.